Ready to go? Everybody can hear, I hope. Thank you, Wendy, and uh, thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. Most difficult thing about uh, doing a program like this with uh, Justice Alan Page is trying to figure out where to start. Uh, I mean, state Supreme Court justice, education advocate, University of Minnesota regent, children's book author, pro football legend, uh, and we're going to touch on all of those areas, I hope, and we'll also be mixing in your questions. So as we, as we talk here, give, give some thought to what you want to ask Justice Page. Uh, but since we're here to celebrate libraries, let's start with the libraries. You said, Justice Page, that libraries are vital to our ongoing survival. That's a heavy burden to bear. Well, but it's true. This, this is not an alternative fact. <laughs> Where would we be if we didn't have simply the repository of all this information? Where would we be if we didn't have systems to get at that information? Where would we be if the people of this state didn't have access to that information, I think we would be um, in not a very good place. Do people appreciate libraries as much as they should? I don't know that all people do, but certainly um, there are a lot of people who take advantage of the library, uh, even in this day and age of the internet, when all you have to do is, you know, ask Siri. <laughs> a library is a pretty good resource to have because, you know, speaking of alternative facts, the library, you can go and get all of the facts. If you know how to use the library, you can satisfy yourself that the information you're getting is grounded in fact, um, or not, as the case may be. I know in our family, we, with our kids, we started introducing them to the library. Um, back then it was the bookmobile, mm -hmm. but um, at a very early age before they could, hardly could walk. And it's interesting, our children's children, uh, our grandchildren, now um, talk about their trips to the library and the books that they get and what they're reading. And these are uh, two five-year-olds and two soon-to-be nine-year-olds. So I think libraries are pretty important in people's lives. I know I visited um, the library in Litchfield last fall, last uh, over the winter, mm -hmm. and this was a Saturday morning, and the place was hopping because it's a place for people to come and not only spend time with other people, but um, have the opportunity to to 
um, look at books, get answers, get questions answered. I think, I think people think they're pretty important. Speaking of things that are important, the Page Education Foundation. What, 6,500 scholars since uh, 1988, 518 yes. this year, $13 million in grants. Uh, money goes to uh, help students move on to post-secondary, but they have to give back mentoring young children. Uh, from, all uh, you know, from all appearances, just an excellent program, but it hasn't been as successful as you and your wife, Diane, hoped it would be when you started this. Well, I don't know that we had any idea what we were getting into when we started this. <laughs> and so I don't know that we had any grand expectations. Uh -huh. We are pretty confident today, though, that um, our paid scholars working with young children in the area of education are creating change and making the future better not only for themselves and not only for the young people they work with, that they mentor and, and tutor, but for this community as a whole, this state as a whole, and this nation and world as a whole. We're pretty proud of them. You know, you, you talk about the 6,500 and the uh, $13 million and all that, but ultimately it's about those young people committed to changing the future and making the future better for all of us. And, and, and I might note, there are paid scholars in the audience. Could we uh, stand up, please? Got some, some scholars here. Don't be shy. One of, one of whom a very proud moment for me, served as a member of this university's Board of Regents. Can you imagine what it must feel like having been a regent myself mm -hmm. to have a scholar following those footsteps? Pretty special stuff. Pretty special stuff. Brings us to the achievement gap, uh, which we've been talking about for a hundred years, I suppose. Um, when all is said and done, more has been said than done. That's right. <laughs> why, has, why has it been so difficult to come up with some way of closing that gap between uh, white students and students of color? Well, I'm no education expert. Let's be clear about that. Do I have some opinions? Yes. Yes. <laughs> we have to have expectations, and then we have to support those expectations. And we haven't done that. How so? Do we have all night? <laughs> um, you know, as I say, we spend a lot of time talking about the importance of education, mm -hmm. but we don't really put, I mean, I, I think, well, let me put it to you this way. I think the best way to educate children is one school at a time, 
one classroom at a time, one child at a time. We don't do that. We're, you know, we spend our time sort of teaching to the masses. Mm -hmm. And maybe there are some efficiencies in that, but we're talking about individual human beings. And if we don't meet the needs of each individual, um, then we're more or less wasting our time. These young people don't need another standardized test to tell them that they're not doing well. They can figure that out on their own. What we, and, and what we do is we fail or we have failed and this, I think, is a relatively recent phenomenon, recent in the last 20, 30 years. We've, we have failed to teach children how to think critically. We teach them lots of information, and we test them on that information. But, you know, do we teach them how to think? And it seems to me if we teach young people how to think critically, the rest of it they can figure out. They can get the information. But if we never teach them how to think critically, then we end up with what we have. And you argue, if I understand it right, that reading and writing, the real most basic of skills, is the most important factor in developing that critical thinking. It sure seems to me that reading and writing, being able to communicate your thoughts on the written page, force you to think critically. You don't have a choice. It, the, the, the interaction between reading and thinking about what you're reading and trying to figure out what's going on, I mean, it forces you to think. And, um, you know, we have a lot of young people who don't read very well. And we have any number of young people that don't write very well. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the poor inner city kid or the poor kid out in the farm. Um, I'm talking about some law school graduates that don't <laughs> write very well. <laughs> And, and, and I don't say that to denigrate law school graduates, but writing is a, is a grand tool to test your thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes we want to write and write and write and write and write. Let me, let me explain this five different ways and maybe whoever is reading it will get one of them. Well, if you explain it clearly and concisely one time, everybody's going to be better off. You had, uh, before you were forced to retire, talked a lot about becoming a teacher, uh, especially I, with, the, with the younger kids. Have you done that? Are you going to do that? I wish I had the courage and the energy. I, I would, if I could, you know, wave my wet magic wand and um, make miracles happen, I, I, 
I would probably modify that to maybe doing a writing seminar for first, second, and third graders, a writing slash reading seminar to get them thinking, to get them interested, to get them engaged, um, particularly with young African-American males. I would love to be able to do that. I don't think I have the energy. Your parents... Well, uh, before, and, and I, I say I don't have the energy. My youngest daughter is a second grade teacher. She leaves the house, well, she's, when she first started teaching, she'd leave the house at six in the morning and get home at seven at night and then finish the work that she didn't get done during the day. I didn't have the energy for that. Now she, she's been at it for 12 or 13 years now. So she can leave the house now at 7.30 <laughs> and get home at 5.30 or 6 o'clock. I'm uh, unfortunately a little past my ability to do those kind of days anymore. Do your uh, parents get the credit for instilling this love of education? Absolutely. They um, reinforced in me at every turn that if I, my brother, and my sisters were going to have a better life than they had, neither one of them got beyond high school that if we were going to have a better life than they had, that we had to be educated and that we had to be good citizens. They also, in their own way, um, made it clear to me that seeking excellence was important. They didn't say it in just that way, but I think that's the point they were making. They would, I can, I can still hear them as we sit here saying, Whatever you do in life, do it as well as you can. Not as well as the person next to you can, but as well as you can. If you're going to be a garbage collector, be the best garbage collector you're going to be. You can be. If you're going to be a doctor, be the best doctor you can be. They didn't much care what I did, but they made sure that I understood that if I was going to be fulfilled as a person, and I had to do things as well as I could. And it's interesting, um, as a professional football player, you see teams go out and, you know, play games. I mean, I played for 15 years. And you come across a lot of players. And most of them were focused on winning. And, you know, if you're focused on that, maybe you'll win, maybe you won't. But you're probably never going to reach your fullest potential because sometimes you don't have to be very good to win. You know, um, and sometimes, some days, you can be very good and still lose. And so sort of riding the roller coaster of who you're playing and what do I have to do to beat them, um, I, I never found very satisfying. And I think that's, that comes from what my parents taught me. Go out and play as well as you can. And generally that will take care of the winning and losing. But more importantly, 
It'll help you fulfill who you are and let you live up to your fullest potential. So you're uh, 13 years old with all the uh, problems that that implies, and then your mom dies. Yes. Uh, that must have been devastating. It was devastating. Um, it still is devastating. Uh, very, very painful. Not something um, that you would wish on anybody. Um, I'll leave it at that. When you were eight, nine, ten, thirteen, whatever, did you uh, want to be a lawyer at that point? Did you want to serve on the Minnesota State Supreme Court? <laughs> when I was, I don't know that I would have said I wanted to serve on the Minnesota Supreme Court. <laughs> I don't know what anybody would have thought that I would have, if I was going to be near any court, they'd probably thought I was you know, the defendant's uh, table and not as counsel. But um, when people, when I was that age, when people had asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I would say I wanted to be a lawyer. Not because I knew what lawyers did or how you became a lawyer, but I'd probably watched too much Perry Mason heard too many stories about lawyers who drove big fancy cars, mm -hmm. made lots of money, didn't work too hard and played golf every Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> Typically somebody like me growing up in Canton, Ohio, if things went really well I might be able to get a job in a steel mill. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with those kind of jobs. Except that even at that early age I understood that they were dangerous dirty, and the work was repetitious. And I figured out early on that wasn't going to work well for me. The other aspect of my interest in the law at that early age was Brown versus the Board of Education. And the court in um, pretty eloquent words said in the field of public education, separate is inherently unequal. This is a time when, if you were African-American, you were a second-class citizen. We had state-sponsored segregation, state-sponsored apartheid in large portions of this country. And where it wasn't state-sponsored, it might as well have been. Um, and so, for me, Brown, even at that early age, I understood that what Brown really was about was hope. Hope that if you could change a system of apartheid, then there was hope for a better future. And um, that was inspirational to me. And at that that point in my life, I hadn't thought about playing football. I wasn't. I was one of those kids that, um, when they chose up sides, they would always hope that there were an odd number so that they wouldn't have to pick me. <laughs> Times changed, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Um, you know, for 
for people who aren't football fans, I, I think they have a hard time grasping just what a great player you actually were. Um, I mean, it was unheard of that a defensive player who played defensive tackle as you did would win a National Football League MVP award. That would that had never happened, and I think even today, maybe like one other person has has done that. Just a sensational career. Uh, did you enjoy football? People say, oh, he doesn't want to talk about football, he didn't like football, he just did it to make some money and do something else. Is that true? I love what I did. Just because I love doing it doesn't mean that I want to spend all my time talking about it. <laughs> or thinking about it. <laughs> one, one can do more than one thing at a time. And... Um, you know, I, I started playing football by accident. My brother, uh, who was ahead of me in school, played, and he seemed to enjoy it, and so I went out. It turns out I had some aptitude for it. But um, I played because I liked it. And it gave me a chance to, in this weird sort of perverse way, um, be an artist, to do things that, or to try to do things um, that were out of the ordinary. And it sort of was a good vehicle for me for that. Talk about out of the ordinary, how could you do that, play pro football at that level, at the highest level, and go to law school at the same time? Either one of those would be more than most people could accomplish, frankly. Well, I'm not so sure about that, but law school extended my football career. I, I mentioned the business about sort of repetition. Well, after a while, you know, there are only so many things you can do on a football field. And by the time I got to the university's law school, I hadn't done all of them, but I'd probably done most of them more than once. And so um, I was, while I still enjoyed performing, I was bored out of my mind. And law school provided that stimulation that um, something to do which gave me a gave me the ability to use my head for something other than a battering ram or a place to store my helmet. And I loved it. I mean there are those who say they couldn't stand law school, hated it. I loved every minute of it because it provided me a real uh, diversion from the day-to-day -day grind of being a professional football player. Now there are people who have served on the Minnesota State Supreme Court who have said they really didn't like that because it was too isolating and sometimes even boring, they said. I'm not saying this. <laughs> I don't. I, what, what, what did you find appealing about this, the Supreme Court, as opposed, say, to the trial courts or whatever? 
being a high-test defense attorney. The thing I love about the law, the reason I was interested in the law, was to me the law is about solving problems and helping people. And being an appellate court justice, you have the opportunity to do that at the highest level. Solving problems, challenging problems. Um, I mean, I, th those who found it boring, I don't know what they were, what their problem was. I couldn't wait every day to get to the office really? because I absolutely was excited. Even, and I, I will admit, one of the least exciting kind of cases that come before the court are no-fault insurance cases. Now, all you lawyers out there who practice in that area, forgive me. But, I, I mean, intellectually, I sort of couldn't stand it. But even in those cases, when you dig into them and try to figure out the meaning of statutory language that oftentimes is inconsistent with itself and working through that and coming to some solution and solving the problem however you solve it. You know, our cases involve real people with real problems and had impact and have impact uh, not only for particular parties but for the state as a whole. I couldn't think of anything more fascinating to do. And the, the, the working with words, you know, and the easy part of the job is figuring out what the answer should be. That was the easy part. But then being able to articulate that answer in a way that was helpful, that was clear and concise, and so that the lawyers and judges and citizens who read our cases could understand it. Um, I, more fun than you can possibly imagine. I, 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 can't, I can't articulate how much fun it was. Do uh, racial minorities get a fair shake in the Minnesota courts? No. Do they get a fair shake in the courts of any other state? No. Do they get a fair shake in our federal judicial system? No. They are overrepresented uh, dramatically. They, the court, when I, shortly after I joined the court, the court issued a report from a task force looking at um, racial bias in our judiciary. And in the context of the criminal law, the court, the, the report indicated that people of color are stopped more often, arrested more often, charged more often, given higher bail, less fair trials, longer sentences, and the list goes on. 
something fundamentally wrong when our system of justice denies particular classes of people equal justice under the law. And the, the, the frustration and the difficulty, you know, if you, you, you'd say, well, if it's that obvious, why don't you just fix it? Fix it. Well, first of all, courts don't just fix things. We don't just make decisions based on what we'd like to do today. You have to have a case in controversy in front of you. You have to have somebody bring that to you. You can't go looking for it. And uh, the other thing is we give our judges a great deal of discretion. A great deal of discretion. Because we ask them to exercise their judgment. And as an appellate court judge, I'm not very, in a very good position to second guess that judgment unless there's something obviously wrong, unless they uh, do something that's inconsistent with the law or um, um, say something or do something that's outright uh, improper. So we can't just I didn't like that result, so I'll, I'll fix it. You can't do that. The other difficulty is it wasn't always clear to me that those people who came through the court system when I was there, that they were always necessarily not guilty of what they'd been accused of. The problem, as I saw it, was that the the problem is that 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 I saw was not necessarily the people of color who we did see, but it was the white people we didn't, who were getting the break, who were being treated less harshly. Those people aren't in court, so you can't do anything about them. And um, I'm not sure I know how we get at that problem. Do you ever think about uh, running for an office that would put you in a position to change the laws that would affect the racial bias in our system? You know, governor, senator, whatever. No. <laughs> Why not? I mean, used to, your name would always pop up. I remember back in the day, when uh, an office would open and the Democrats were casting about for a potential candidate, and invariably Alan Page would surface the name, not funny, the person. Funny how that works. <laughs> I know my strengths, I know my skills, and I know my interests. And the work of the Minnesota Supreme Court fit those interests, skills, and abilities in ways that um, nothing else possibly could. I, the other thing is, and Representative Kahn, forgive me when I say this, but being 
in one of the political branches of government. Just not my idea of a good time. <laughs> Better I should, you know, take a hammer and tap my forehead <laughs> with it. A um, little more on the on the uh, racial situation in America, if we could. How um, how would you characterize uh, the state of race relations today? Um, Deteriorating dramatically. Really? Yes. Why, uh, well, we have a start off with a uh, an attorney general who's. Um, a, a United States Attorney General whose record on race leaves a great deal to be desired. We have a senior advisor to the President of the United States who either owned or was editor, I'm not, I can't recall as I sit here, a, a newspaper, online newspaper, what have you, um, that catered to white supremacists. And we have a president of the United States who makes remarks which give license to everyday citizens to attack those who are different than they are. I can't see how race relations can do anything under those circumstances other than deteriorate. Were they, and, getting, and it, were they getting better before the uh, election last well, night? Well, evidently not. Um, we, we all thought they were getting better because people didn't have the courage, weren't comfortable exposing their biases. Um, but evidently those biases have been there all along. I mean, can you imagine being a, a student in a school system or in a classroom where a teacher comes into the classroom, you're African-American, and the teacher comes in and says something using the N-word? Can you imagine that? That happening? What, is, what does that do to you? as a human being. And what is it that would make a teacher or a school board member or a government official say something like that in that setting? Describing the First Lady of the United States as a gorilla in high heels. I heard that one and I, 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 quite frankly, I lost it. I just, it, it, it tells me that we have um, a long way to go. You and your wife uh, have put together a really uh, amazing collection of memorabilia from the Jim Crow era, civil rights and so on. How did you, um, what, what motivated you to get into collecting? Well, it's kind of a long story. Diane was the one who um, initially got us into it. 
thinking about having some of my heritage in the house for our children, for them to see. One thing led to another, and the next thing I know we're living in this, what seems some days like a museum. <laughs> I see new items and uh, things even today, and we stopped buying 10 years ago. <laughs> I see stuff today that I had never seen before. But, you know, we wanted to preserve some things that were beautiful and also to collect some things that were not so beautiful, that were indeed ugly, mm -hmm. to make sure that we never forgot. And it was important to me, as it's important to me as a human being, but certainly as a judge, to remember that, to, and to have physical reminders that we haven't always been fair to all of our citizens. Um, I want to get some audience questions uh, on now. So raise your hand and we'll get a microphone to you so we can make sure we get your question, we can hear your question and get it on the radio. Eventually this program is going to be broadcast on Minnesota Public Radio. So, Meanwhile, I want to talk about your uh, new career as a children's book author, including Alan and his perfectly pointy and possibly perpendicular pinky. I noticed you struggled saying that. You, you have to read it, or I do. <laughs> Alan and his perfectly pointy, impossibly perpendicular pinky. And for, and for those of you who are wondering about Alan and his perfectly pointy. Can we see it? There is the perfectly pointy, impossibly perpendicular pinky. For the radio audience, it really is perpendicular. Can you straighten it out? I mean, sure. if you want sure. to. <laughs> the radio audience can't see that, but uh -huh. yes. With, with help. Straighten it out. With help. Now, why did you decide to start writing children's books? Well, two things. One, Diane and I have an education foundation. Books are connected to education, right? My view of the world, anyway. Books are central. We talked earlier about the need to get children reading, the critical thinking. And um, Diane had the brilliant idea for the foundation's 25th anniversary that I should write a children's book. Well, you know, I'd written some opinions along the way, but certainly hadn't written anything else of substance. And so suddenly, um, me writing a children's book became my youngest daughter and I writing a book. She'd been working with me, writing, helping me write speeches. And so I enlisted her to help me with the book. And um, she's been great fun, mm -hmm. great fun to work with. I drive her crazy a little bit, I think, because <laughs> my, given my love of words and, you know, having all the words in the right order and, and editing until 
you can't edit anymore. That is until the book is up, you know, is in print. Um, I drive her a little crazy, but we've had a great bit of fun writing what I think are some pretty good books. Uh, the other book is The Invisible You. The invi the, Alan is perfectly pointy and possibly perpendicular. Pinky was my idea. <laughs> and I should note that while the pinky gets billing in the title, it's about more than just my pinky. It's about really um, children and their The, the importance of, of looking beyond what we see on the surface mm -hmm. and allowing children to be themselves and explore. Um, and for those of you who don't have the pinky book, that's the short term, shorthand term, um, I think you'd find it interesting. But the second book, The Invisible You, was her idea. As a second grade teacher, she was, one of their units has to do with uh, talking with the students and getting the students to talk about differences. And they didn't have, she didn't have a good vehicle to do that. And so her idea was to, we're going to write a second book, let's do one that creates that vehicle. And I do a fair number of, of book readings and schools around the state. And invariably, invariably, whether it's in um, St. Cloud or uh, the Litchfield Library or the Rogers Library or wherever it is, a teacher will come up and say, the invisible you was really helpful for precisely what we were trying to accomplish. And so that, that kind of makes you feel good that you got something right. Uh, yes, I would think it would be. We have a question here. Hi, Alan. When you worked for a certain legendary f football coach and you took up marathoning and it, and it led to a little disagreement, I, as I recall, and can you tell us what that, that, what is it that led you to, I mean, we were getting a sense tonight of that you're, you don't like boredom, <laughs> and, and, but was it, what was it that led you into marathoning that led you, that gave you the courage to, to stay with that when it was not approved, shall we say, by the system? What led me to it was, um, I'll give you a little bit of background. Up to 1975, I wouldn't run any further than somebody made me and would try to figure out how to avoid it even then. You know, as a, as a football player, running was always a punishment for some transgression, either real or perceived. And um, so I never liked running. And then, you know, it was about the time that the running boom hit the country. And we had some friends who were runners. And all of a sudden, I looked at running in kind of a different light. I should also note that one of the books, or one of the, a movie that um, 
had an impact on me in my younger days was the loneliness of the long distance runner. Mm -hmm. I, f I love that movie. And 1975, the running boom hits. We have these friends that run. I thought, I think I'll give that a try. And one thing led to another, and the next thing I know, I'm running, you know, a mile, which is a long way, seems like. And then three miles, then five, and then <laughs> the, 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 the first really long run I ever did was an 11-mile run from our house to Lake of the Isles, to Lake Calhoun, and around Lake Harriet. And Diane had started running sometime shortly after I did. And she, um, she struggled at first. I mean, when she started, she couldn't make it a quarter of the way around Kenwood Park. And then, you know, she built herself up and she's running. Uh, she got to the point where she could do a mile. And then by then I was doing three. I got to the point where I could do five or six and she was doing three. And one day she ran five. And we ran together so it was fantastic. One day we decided, well, I was gonna to try to do the three lakes. And she, you know, she'd never run more than five miles. She jumps in with uh, me and another friend. And by the time we get to the far side of Lake Harriet, Diane is nowhere in sight. And people are coming back towards us saying, there's a woman up there who said, if I see you two, to tell you to hurry up. <laughs> true story, I mean, true story. She was blazing fast. I was just a plotter. <laughs> uh, let's go back to the back of the room there. Go ahead. Yes, Judge Page. I, my question is about the legacy of the Obama administration and his huge need on the part of some to erase any aspect of that. By the way, I also like the loneliness, both the movie and the book. Could you comment about what you think the legacy in the long term will be? I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that, what the legacy will be. Certainly, um, it will be one of class, class in the sense of a president who could speak to us as a people and recognize that not everybody agreed with him, but that he was the president of all of us. I think um, another piece of the legacy will be health care. Who knows where it'll end up down the road, but the grand effort to ensure that all of us 
had the health care that we need, or at least access to it. Um, the legacy of having young African-American boys and girls and other children of color look up to somebody who looks like them, who's had some degree of shared experience with what they've experienced. Um, and now with the idea that it's possible. I would, when I was um, young, I, it never would have occurred to me that in my lifetime mm -hmm. we would see an African-American president. There was, uh, as you well recall, when, when uh, Barack Obama was elected, the thought was this really was going to move us into a whole new uh, realm of race relations and open up those uh, doors to uh, young children, give them the hope that you can do this sort of thing. But you get the sense that maybe that none of that happened or very little of that happened. Oh, I don't, I don't know that we can say that. It's not clear to me that it didn't happen. I know lots of little young kids who um, see the former president and say, yeah, that could be me. I can do that. You know, and if you, if you can't see it, if you can't have that vision, mm -hmm. then clearly you won't think you could, that it's possible. Now, how it all plays out down the road may be different than what any of us expect. But um, the importance, I think, of having had Barack Obama as president in the lives of children who are yet unborn is unknown and unknowable but I think it's going to be tremendous. Uh, you said you didn't really ever have any interest in running for political office. Did you ever want to be on the U.S. Supreme Court? Never spent a lot of time thinking about it. I figured, you know, I've got the best job in the world. Why should I be worrying about that? And quite frankly, what's the difference between what the U.S. Supreme Court did and what we do here in Minnesota. Well, they dealt with federal law. And they get to be the last one in line. Um, you know, on issues of state law, we were the end of the line. And um, as Justice Tom Yanovich used to quote some U.S. Supreme Court justice, um, We're not last because we're right. We're simply right because we're last. <laughs> and, and that's true. And, you know, the, the, the fact is that um, 
what the United States Supreme Court does is only different in kind from what we do here, from what I did here. So I'm not at all um, upset, concerned, even think about the fact that I didn't have the opportunity to serve on that court. Your former uh, colleague, David Strauss, has been nominated to serve on the uh, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Good, uh, good nomination? I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> David is a friend of mine. David um, is not an ideologue. He's um, thoughtful, hardworking, and he's a good person. And so um, I'm happy for him. I know there are some people who um, are concerned about the process that got him nominated. That's a different story, but, uh, and, and that's something to be concerned about, but I think he will do a good job. Quick question over here, and then we're getting close to having to wrap up, unfortunately. Go ahead. Thinking about this wonderful celebration today and things that you and Gary have said tonight, I was reminded of an ad that's in Foreign Affairs by Harry Truman and says that not all readers are leaders, but all leaders are readers. Would you care to comment? Can I? <laughs> I have to sort of process that one. Leaders are readers, basically, bottom line. I'm asking you guys, you're the ones. <laughs> but I think that that's a, it's a wonderful phrase and I've, I've seen it in each issue that I read. I hadn't seen it and I'd have to think about it before I commented on it. Well, let me ask you this one before we quit. Um, you know, we, were, we started talking about all the things that you've been involved with, you've accomplished over time, haven't even gotten to the U of M, uh, but of all of those things, what, which one is, are you most proud of? All the various achievements. I'm most proud of the soon to be 44 years of marriage to Diane Sims Page. She has supported me, encouraged me, inspired me, and allowed me to be more than what I might otherwise have been. I couldn't ask for more. And how is it that you got on to bow ties? <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> what do, uh, well, the, the fact is that you know, in my early football days, we'd travel and then you'd have to wear a suit and a tie. And the tie was always in the soup. And I don't like that, so I just, and you know, a little bit of rebellion, I suppose. I just, I'll put on a bow tie. And back then they were clip-ons. <laughs> and um, then one day it's, I, I started thinking, you know, I kind of like the way this looks. It's a good look. And so 
I actually bought one that I had to tie. That was a challenge. But then I finally figured that out. And over the years, I've, I can't tell you how many ties I've had, uh, but every one of them has its own personality. And on different days, they tie different ways. Some days they're agreeable and some days they're not. Sometimes they're fun and sometimes they're not. This one was um, not as agreeable tonight as it was. Now, I've worn this tie, actually the last three outings I've had, I've worn the same tie. It's a Page Education Foundation tie. <laughs> Got to get that last plug in. And tonight, for some reason, it didn't want to cooperate. I mean, I sort of have it in place, but not, not the way it normally is. And so it's challenging, and it's fun. Keeps you on your toes. Justice Alan Page. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. This is much fun. Thank you. Thank you.